we're just uh, getting set to step into this new year. And I, I want to bring up a couple of things that the Lord's put on our hearts and that the Lord spoke to us uh, in the, at the end of 2019. How many of you were here last week? Last Sunday? Okay, so let me kind of re-say some things just so that we kind of were all on the same page. Um, the Lord was so good to us, and uh, I thank God that we can hear his voice, and I thank God that he always speaks to us uh, through many different ways. And um, one of those things is, you know, I've always kind of said that I don't think God's plan changes because the calendar changed, but I do think that there's significant points and, and, and good times for us to stop and, and take, you know, take note and say, God, where are we headed the right way? Where are we supposed to be headed? And let's just face it, New Year is a good time to do that. New Year is a really good time to um, actually take stock and say, Lord, which direction do you want me in? And so as we step into this new year, um, the Lord had, 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 had put it strong on us that uh, we were stepping into a year of building and planting. And so last week, we read from Jeremiah 1, and I'm going to read that to you again just so you have it fresh in your heart. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, because before you need to build and plant, there's something you need to do. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about creating space. Because the Bible's pretty clear that before you can build, you have to clear out space so that you can build. Before you can plant, you need to take the weeds out of the garden. You need to make room. A lot of us are, are wanting God to do a work in our life, but sometimes it's, it's, it's a little bit harder to create the space for the work. And, you know, I, I, if you're like me, uh, an empty space on the calendar, an empty space in your daily schedule is awkward at times. It's, it's a little, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're being productive. You know, God is the same God that told his people to take a day off every week. That's one day you're not earning, if you're thinking the way the world thinks. That's a day you're not out in the field. That's a day you're not producing. But God said, if you'll give me the sixth day, if you'll give me the seventh day, I'll take care of the six days. And your six days will be way more productive if you give me that Sabbath. God himself took a Sabbath rest, right? So Sabbath, taking a rest is not a sign of weakness. Too many times we see rest as, a, as catching up. Instead of saying, this is me preparing for next week. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? If you look at the, uh, the way the, uh, the Hebrew people looked at their day, the, in, the, in the Jewish way of looking at your day, the, the next day started at 6 p.m. The next day started the evening before. That was when you were preparing. You started with rest. And when you start with rest, you're not just catching up, you're moving ahead. God speaks to you in that place of rest. And so if you want to see God move greatly in your life. If you want God to do some things in your life that you've been praying for, you have to be okay with clearing some stuff out of your schedule, clearing some stuff out of your heart, clearing some stuff out of your mind, and letting him have more space than he has right now. You know, if we constantly pray for revival, but we don't want our schedules to change, we don't really want revival. You know what I'm saying? If we, if we ask for revival, but we want our schedule to stay the same, stop asking for revival. It's not what you want. You want the same that you've always had. Yeah. But if you want God to just take over more and more space, give him more and more space. Yeah. Right? Jeremiah chapter 1, God said to him, before, and this is verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, look at me. I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, and he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. He said, I have put my words in your mouth. Not someday I'm going to put words in your mouth. I've already done it. My words are going to be in your mouth, and it's going to be up to you to speak these words, right? I said it last week, and I'll say it again. When you speak God's words, they don't become your words. They're still God's word. They still have that power. God's word needs to be in your mouth. That's where it has the power. Now, now trust me, God's word, I know it's, it's it, it, God's word is powerful. God's word is eternal. God's word is consistent. Whether or not you believe it or not, his word is forever settled in heaven. But whether or not it changes your life, 
often has to do with how you receive it and how, what you do with it. That's why God said to Joshua, he said, if you will keep this word in your mouth, if you'll keep speaking this word, then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you will have great success. Right. It's funny that he didn't say, Joshua, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, you'll, you'll be fine. Because I want you to be successful. So, Josh, doesn't matter what you say. Josh, it doesn't matter what you do. You just be you, and I'll take care of this. No, he said, Joshua, if you'll do this, if you will keep this word, if you will keep meditating on it, if you will keep it, don't let it depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. And the Hebrew word for meditate meant to keep muttering it to yourself. If you will keep speaking my word like a cow chews its cud, if you will keep the word in your mouth, then you will, then you, then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have great success. That's interesting because what he's saying is, Joshua, I've done my part, now you do yours. This is what you need to do. Then he said, the Lord stretched his hand, he put his hand on my mouth, and he said, behold, look, I've put my words in your mouth. And then he said, see, I've appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. So when the Lord said to us, 2020, this year is going to be a building and a planting year, then the first thing we've got to do is say, not just get to building and planting, the first thing we've got to do is say, have I created space? Because out of the six verbs he names here, four of them are destructive words. And two of them are productive words. Now those two productive words are the point, but before you can get to the production, you got to get to the destruction, right? He says, pluck up, and that literally means in the Hebrew to pull up by the roots, to completely uproot, and so thank God. Whatever it's been in your life that has just been so ingrained in you, whether it's generational, whether it's just been habits all your life, whether it's been something that's just got you, you haven't been able to shake it loose, you say, every time I cut the head off of it, it grows back in my life. Every time I think I've got over it, it's back again. God said, my word is powerful enough to pull it up by the roots so that it doesn't stay. He said, it's, my word is there to break down. And this, most often when this word is used in the Old Testament, it was talking about tearing down idols and strongholds. Everything that exalts itself against God. The word of God will tear down the idols in your life that are taking up the space that God's supposed to take up that are taking God's place, that are sitting on God's throne. They're intruders in your life, and the word of God will tear those idols down. He says the word of God will destroy. This word literally means to obliterate, nothing's left. And to overthrow. And overthrow is exactly what it sounds like. If there's an invading force, if there's a power in your life that shouldn't be there, the word of God is powerful to overthrow it. See, when you will trust God to do these things, then there's room to build and to plant. And God's not competing for space. Today, you know, I, I was in prayer about how to approach today, seeing where we left off last week. And uh, we'll, spend a few uh, we'll spend a few weeks this January talking about uh, building and planting and just following what the Lord tells us to do. But today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Today I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to read you a story from the Bible. And it's, a, it's an important story, but it's one we don't talk about a whole lot. It's important, and it's probably one of those, like, you know, there's, there's, there's main stories in the Scripture that kind of are the hinge points of history. You know, there's, there's the creation and the fall of man. There's, there's Abraham and his covenant. There's Noah. There's, there's uh, one that pops up all the time is the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And going into the promised land. That's referenced all the time. Another one that's constantly looked forward to and looked back upon is when the Israelites were in captivity and they came back to their homeland and God told them, I'm going to rebuild, I'm going to restore, I'm going to bring you back to your homeland and I'm going to build it better than it ever was. I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Restoration, in Bible terms, restoration doesn't mean I'm going to put you back where you were. Restoration means I'm going to put you back where you were supposed to be. You see, that's so different than the way we think of it. When we think of God restoring us, we think, God, take me back to my best day. But the Bible tells us that, that you know, works of healing were works of restoration. Even when a man was born blind, God restored his sight. Well, you say, God, how can you restore my sight if I've never had it? Right? 
in our view of restoration, we say, God, I, I, hit a, I, I slid down a little bit. I've hit a barricade. I, I'm not doing as well as I once was. Restore me to where I was. But God restored that man who was born blind back to something he never experienced. He restored him to the way he was created to be. And so when God talks about restoring in Ezekiel 36, he tells them, I'm going to bring you back to your homeland, and I'm going to make these ruined places that even birds don't want to live in, I'm going to make it like the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you've read your Bible, but Israel never looked like the Garden of Eden. God said, when I restore it, it'll be better than it was. So this story starts, is Jeremiah is important in this. We referenced Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah was the guy that told them, folks, we haven't done so well. And what's going to happen is the Babylonians are going to come, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. They're going to take us away from our homeland. And we're going to be there for 70 years, a whole generation. We're going to be there for 70 years. But after 70 years, he said, I will fulfill my good word to you, and I will bring you back to the land I promised you. And he said, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. They are plans for good and not for evil. They are plans to give you a future and a hope. That's what Jeremiah said. Everybody goes to Babylon and For the first few years, it's awkward. For the first few years, it's uncomfortable. But the one thing the Babylonians did well when they conquered other peoples was they learned how to make people happy by letting them keep a little bit of their culture and then taking a whole lot of Babylonian culture. The Babylonians had a method. They they would take the best and the brightest, and they would bring them to their schools. And in their Babylonian universities, they would educate you in their ways so that their brightest, young, noble people wouldn't be rebellious against the Babylonians. They would be sold, all sold to the Babylonian system. They would fall in love with the Babylonian system. The only thing is, the guys they picked didn't all go for that. They picked, three, they picked four young men that changed history. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. We know them sometimes as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel. These four young men said, we are not changing who we are. We are not letting go of who God made us to be. And even though they were brought into the palace and the universities, and they were brought to the highest levels of Babylonian government, they didn't compromise who they were. So it's an image for us today. Because God is putting his people in positions of influence where they don't have to compromise to stay there. They don't have to compromise to get there. They can honor God and say, you can't change who I am. After 70 years, Daniel opens his book, his scrolls, and he looks at Jeremiah's prophecy and he says, it's been 70 years. Why aren't we home? See, there's something you can do with prophecy. You can either say, well, thank God, I got it. We'll see if it happens. Or you can hang on to it. You can fight for it. Paul said to Timothy, remember the prophetic word that was spoken over you and wage good warfare with it. See, it's important, he said, that you remember what God said to you. You remember what happened to you when they laid their hands on you and you fight for that. You use that to fight for your future. Daniel didn't just say, well, we'll see if it happens. We'll see if Jeremiah was a phony or not. He knew Jeremiah was for real. So he goes down to the river and he says, I'm going to pray until God shows me what's supposed to happen. God gave him a vision. God gave him a vision far beyond the next few years. Set him on the course, set Israel on the course they were supposed to be in. So then in They get to the point where you guys know the name Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. I don't know. Nobody really wants that job, but it's a pretty important job. (laughs) He's the king's personal assistant, right? He's the guy that makes sure the king has what he needs. He's not just a cupbearer. He's a bit of an advisor. He's the go-to guy. Nehemiah has this word from the Lord that it's time to go home. And so God gives Nehemiah guts. God gives Nehemiah some bravery. And he walks into the king's chair. Remember, these aren't good kings. These aren't nice kings. Let me tell you a little bit about these kings. Babylonian kings, Persian kings, you might think of them as nice, great kings that they're statues of, but they weren't always so nice. 
You, you know Esther's husband that we, we go, oh, what a love story. Not a love story. No. Not a love story. No. It was a survival story. We paint this picture of Esther like she was, oh, it's the most romantic fall in love with the king story. No. It was nothing romantic, but she did what she had to do to save her people. Here's the funny thing. When she walked in and said, you know, if I have favor with the king, she walked in where she wasn't supposed to go, spoke when she wasn't supposed to speak, and she could have lost her life, but God protected her. That guy that she married, yeah, he's the bad guy in a lot of movies. That guy, let me just give you an example from his life so you know a little bit about what these kings are dealing with. That guy tried to invade Greece a couple of times, and one time... He, tries, he builds this bridge across this body of water. And he's got all these men building this bridge. And it's, it's a really important project, national project. We're going to invade Greece. This is the way we're going to do it. Let's build a bridge so we can march our troops across. A storm comes and washes the bridge away before it's finished. So he has all the builders executed. <laughs> it's not their fault. He has them executed. Then he does something very majestic and kingly. He has them come and take whips and flog the water. Whip the water for being bad water. <laughs> throws, the, throws the heads of the guys that were supposed to build the bridge in the water and whips the water. Maybe you understand why Esther didn't want to march into his room uninvited. <laughs> right? That's not the guy here, but there's a lot of those kind of characters. And so when Nehemiah has a word from the Lord, he knows he's got to bring up something that's a little awkward. And he asks the king, he says, king, we need to go home. And God moved on the heart of the king. But I want to tell you a little bit about, the guy I want to focus on today is a man named Zerubbabel. I love that name, don't you? <laughs> Come on, moms who are expecting. <laughs> Mylene, Paul. If it's a boy, Zerubbabel, you'd call him Rubba That's a football player waiting to happen. <laughs> Anyways, Zerubbabel was a governor, one of the first guys to come and lead the people as they came back home. About 42,000 Jews came back to their homeland. And they had the permission of the king to do it. And I want to read you something from the book of Haggai, if you can find it. <laughs> this is your... This is your test. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents. <laughs> we're going to read this story, and we're going to jump around to some different uh, uh, narratives. There's, it's amazing how many books in this, in this Bible talk about this one story. Um, Three important names that you should remember, of course, four, I guess. Nehemiah was one of the guys that was leading the project to rebuild the walls. He came back. He quit his job with the king, and he came back to lead the people. But there's other guys like Ezra. Ezra was the guy who famously said, don't weep, for this is a holy day, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. That was Ezra. Prophet named Haggai came back and led the people. A prophet named Zechariah came back and led the people. You see, the people were animated and, 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 and pushed by the prophetic voices that were leading them. It was the word of the Lord that sent them. It was the word of the Lord that sustained them. It was the word of the Lord that encouraged them. It was the word of the Lord that empowered them to do what they were supposed to do. And you see, today, thank God, today, we have the word of the Lord. We have the word of the Lord. And when you hang on to God's word, when you hang on to the word of the Lord, and you don't let go of it even when it gets hard, that word will cause you to do what you never could do before. And so these prophets went with the people. And the book of Haggai, it's only two chapters. And so, you know, take some time and read it. It's very, uh, it'd be beneficial to you. But it says in Haggai chapter 1, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, or Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Let me give you background. By the time this is written, 
The people of God have been back home for 18 years. They've rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt the gates. They've rebuilt their businesses. But you know what hasn't been rebuilt? The temple. The temple that God built, Solomon built it. David gave the plans for it. Solomon built it. The people of Israel uh, built it with the craftsmen, and, and it was beautiful, and it was majestic, but it had been destroyed. It had been stripped bare. Everything was gone. And when they came back, they rebuilt everything, but they couldn't bear to rebuild that. We're going to read in a minute how one of the most discouraging things for them was that they kept looking back to how it used to be, and they couldn't imagine it being that good again. Sometimes your own memories are your own worst enemies where you're so hung up on how things used to be that you can't imagine. You're so depressed with where they are. What you need is the image that God's put in your heart and in your mind. You don't need uh, to look back fondly on the former days. You need to look, back at, look forward ahead to what God is building and say, this is worth fighting for. So after 18 years, nothing has happened. The word of the Lord comes to two men in particular. One who's the spiritual head and one who's the governmental head. And they come together. You know, God has made us to be kings and priests, right? There's an anointing of a priest, there's an anointing of a king. They, they come together in the church, they come together in Christ. And so something beautiful happens when you realize that you're both a priest and a king, that there's, these things come together, that they're working together. A lot of people think that ministry only happens on a stage, but ministry happens when you go to work. There is a priestly anointing that goes with you, but there's a kingly anointing that goes with you. As you go and you do business, as you go and you make decisions, whatever you're doing, you are operating as a king, as a queen, ruling and reigning. And so here he speaks to the governor and he speaks to the high priest and he says, the time is not, you say the time has not come. You're saying even the time for the house of the Lord is not here to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. Your, your thirst isn't quenched. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. What's he saying? You're so focused on what you're building, you forgot what God was building. And this is a pattern that remains to this day. When we neglect what God is building and we focus on our stuff, we think that now that we're focusing on our stuff, our stuff will do better. But it doesn't. Why is it? They're wondering, why is it that we sow a lot, but we harvest little. Why is it that we eat and we're never satisfied? Why is it that we drink and our thirst is not quenched? Why is it that, that we put on clothes, but no one's warm enough? Why is it that we keep earning, but it feels like we're putting coins into a purse with holes in it? God says, because you're neglecting my work. See, if we get this revelation that seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, and his righteousness, all the other stuff will be added to you. Listen, if we would get this revelation that it, when you're saying, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, focus on the things of God. And it feels like the last thing you should do. It feels like now's the time for me to focus on me. God will understand. The business is in trouble. God will understand. My family needs help. God will understand. And God says, yo, I understand. But your problem is you are so focused on you that you're doing it your way and it's not working. And if you'll focus on my stuff, if you'll put your hand on my work, in your life, in the body God called you to, in the church God called you to, in the ministry God called you to, in the job God called you to. If you'll focus on kingdom stuff, God will build your stuff. He said, there's a reason that you're doing a lot of work and getting little back because you've neglected my work. Boy, is that a word for North Americans today. We need to hear this. We get so obsessed with the world's way of doing things that we think the more we tread on the treadmill, the faster we'll go, and we're not gaining ground. Turn back to the work of the Lord. Turn back to the work of the Lord, and he'll bless everything else. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here's how to get out of your mess. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and glorified. 
You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house which lies desolate, while each of you, each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God had sent them, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I'm with you, declares the Lord. What a word, hey? I mean, if that's the word you need. I'm with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. I even love the way he says it. Like it's so big, he declares it. How often do you just go and declare stuff? Right? I, I, yeah, never mind. I'm going to get <laughs> You ever see a joke bombing before you say it? Yep. So you just back up slowly and thank God you escaped? I am with you, declares the Lord. So the, the Lord stirred up the spirit as Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I want you to stop for a minute. Because when I was preparing for this, and I was ready to teach something and just kind of dig into something, and the Lord led us instead to read this, to talk about this story. It was impressed on me very strongly that many of you, when you hear this story, it's going to be a prophetic story for you. And there's going to be certain things that come alive when you hear it. So I want you to open up your ears right now. I want you to open up your heart because the way that God stirred up Joshua and the way that God stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel, that's what he wants to do with you today. And so you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, you know, maybe even, maybe even while we're reading it, you're going to be saying, why can't I focus? I need to listen more. But God's talking to you in the middle of it. Let God speak to you. Let God stir up your heart. God stirred up his heart and they came and they worked in the house of the Lord their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? That's what we were talking about earlier. He says, How many of you remember the temple the way it used to be? Old people put up their hands. He said, So how does it seem to you now? Seems like nothing. He's, he's, he's revealing the source of their frustration. They're too busy thinking about how it used to be, that they're discouraged with how it is right now. It doesn't look like that. I don't know if it ever will. Solomon had all that money, and, and, and we had all those workmen, and, and, and David had arranged for all those materials to come from foreign lands, and we're a bunch of, we're just a bunch of ragtags that came from Babylon, and we've lived away from our home for 70 years, and we don't know how to do this, and, and they remember the way it used to be, and it makes them sad. Does it seem like nothing to you in comparison? But he says, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all of you people in the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. I don't want you to hear that. I want you to receive that as you build. As, see, here's the, here's the thing. God is building something in your life. God is building something in our church. But when God builds, he uses you. God, whatever he's building, he wants to use you to do it. And so God's going to say this to you over and over again because a lot of us, here, here's, the, here's the problem. A lot of us, we want a building in our life, but we don't want the building process in our life. Does that make sense? We're praying for things, and we want God to smack it down like it's a Monopoly game. And there's suddenly a house there. There's suddenly a hotel there. And we're frustrated because we don't want to take the process of a brick on top of another brick on top of another brick. You know what's frustrating about that process? 
It's not finished. We like finished things. I hate when I have to drive on the highway and there's a ready-made house in front of me. But boy, I guess it's nice to see one of those just all of a sudden pop up on your property, right? One of those houses that they just build somewhere else and they move it, bam. And that's what we want God to do. Build a house, move it, put it on my property. Make the traffic on Highway 16 stop for a day. What a city guy thing to say, hey? Sorry, first world problems. But here we are, frustrated with building. And a lot of times our frustration is what, what we remember. Oh, do you remember this? But you forget it didn't just happen that way. When we had those former things that were glorious, they didn't just come out of nowhere. God built them. You know, I know pastors that say, you know, oh, look at the people that you have. and You've got this person and that person. Boy, if I had people like that, we could do anything. Nobody starts with people like that. We all come into the kingdom a mess of some sort. And God takes who we are and he changes us into who we're meant to be. And so if you're not willing to take an unfinished work, you're not a builder. You're just a thief. But God wants builders. He wants planters. He wants people that will see the end from the beginning like he does. And here he says, take courage and work. Take courage and work. When you have courage, you're ready to work. I mean, some of, some of us just flinch when we hear the W word already. <laughs> work. Ooh. I didn't come to church for that. This is my vacation time. This is the weekend. I didn't come for work. You were created for it. You know, there was work on the planet before there was sin. Before there was a curse, there was work. Let me tell you something. The next life, that new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be work. And you're going to like it. You're going to love it. Ask somebody who hasn't worked in a long time how they feel about that. First couple weeks, maybe it's like a vacation. After that, drives you up the wall. We were created for work. See, the problem is, is when the curse came, God said when the curse came, the ground will be cursed and, and it'll be hard to get fruit from it. It'll have thorns. It'll be hard. You'll sweat. You'll work and you'll get barely anything. But when the blessing of the Lord comes, he says, behold, take courage and work because I'm with you. And when I'm with you, I bless the work of your hands. That's good news. Take courage and work. If you know, if you are feeling lazy, if you are feeling uh, just, just drudging along, if you are feeling like it's hard, you know that God's got things for you, but it's hard to get motivated, then what you need is the word of the Lord bringing courage to you. You need your heart to come back to life. Take courage and work. I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I want you to skip over to Ezra for a minute. I told you, some big names that came back. Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the walls. Ezra came back and retaught them the law. Haggai and Zechariah came back and prophesied to them. Gave them the word of the Lord that was going to motivate them to work and to, to dream again. Oh, I pray that you would dream again. That you would know that God is with you. That you would know that you're not building by yourself. That you would know that you are not working for God. You are working with God. Amen. Amen. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers that labor on it are laboring in vain. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the workers are working in vain. Their, their time is useless. But you know, he doesn't say, unless the, he doesn't say, unless the Lord builds the house... He doesn't say the Lord should build the house and there should be no workers. He doesn't say the Lord will build it and the workers just need to stay home. He says if the Lord's not building it, the laborers are wasting their time. But what's the opposite of that? If the Lord is building it, the laborers aren't wasting their time. They're, they're, they're actually productive. They're actually fruitful. See, God doesn't want to eliminate the laborers. He wants the laborers to say God is building this. This is God's work in my life. God started it. God will finish it. This is God's work in my family. This is God's work in my church. God started it. He'll finish it, but he's going to use me. I'm going to put my hand to the work. I'm going to take courage and work. Interestingly enough, that's what David told Solomon. As David was an old man ready to die, when he told Solomon how to build the temple, he said, take courage, my son, and work. Isn't that awesome? For, for God is with you. I love it. 
How could we just say that today? How could we say that in a way that just makes sense today? Take courage. Get your heart back. Take courage in the Lord and do what God told you to do. For he's with you. And start where you start. Don't start from the end. See the end, but start at the beginning. One brick on top of another brick. Don't be discouraged that it's not there yet. Don't be discouraged that it's not grand. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop comparing yourself to the past. Build from where you are. You see, if you build from the beginning, if, you, if there's a good foundation, you build on that foundation, it may take longer, but it'll last longer. Right? Here's the deal. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 8, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. One thing I didn't read, but it's earlier on in this chapter, it says that Zerubbabel arose and began to do the work that God called him to do. I love that word, arose. If you'll look up the word arise in your Bible, you'll get really inspired. Because... I mean, every time you see the word arise, either it's talking about somebody bad that arose, but if it's talking about somebody good that arose, it's right as God is doing something, somebody arises. And in fact, Jesus, when he raises the dead, he says, arise, Tabitha, arise. He tells him, get up, arise. When he tells Paul, he says, now arise and go to this guy's house and he's going to tell you how to get saved. That, that in order for God to do these miracles that you're asking for, one of the things you've got to do is get up. Stop waiting for God to knock down your door and get and open your door and get out where he is. Arise and go. And so one of the things when the word of the Lord came, Zerubbabel finally received the word of the Lord. His heart was stirred. He was discouraged. It had been 18 years. Nothing had happened. And so now the word of the Lord came and it stirs him up and he gets up. What does Isaiah say? Arise and shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In order for the light to shine on you, you got to get up. What does it say in the New Testament? It says that the day of darkness is, is, is done. The, the night is almost over. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us arise. Let us put on uh, uh, the armor of light. Let us, let us wake up, O sleeper, it says, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's, there's something that needs to happen. You need to get up. And I know what it's like to feel like i got to stay in my spiritual bed because you're discouraged, because you're tired. You're waiting on God to make you get up. But I'll tell you what you need. When you, hear, when you feel the word of the Lord stirring your heart, put, your, put, put everything behind it. When you feel the word of God stirring your heart, put action to it. Even if it's a small action, put action to it. Get up and do something. It says here in verse 10, Ezra 3.10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. The Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good and his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Hey, isn't that awesome? They got excited about the foundation. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who'd seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. This is what Haggai was talking about. They're remembering what it used to be. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Which leads us to the next thing. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said, 
let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God. Uh, we've been sacrificing him to him since the days of Ershadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. These are the ancestors of the famous Samaritans. But they've forsaken the way of the Lord. They say, hey, we worship the same God. It's the same God. It's the same God. Let's worship. Can we go? Can we help? We'll help you. Let's do it together. But the people of God know, no, you're not worshiping the same God. And it's very tempting because they say they want to help. Hey, it's very tempting to take some free money, free help, right? Like, okay. Hey, it's all the same God. Can we do this with you? And then, verse 3. Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's household of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Listen, the first thing that the enemy will bring against you isn't necessarily opposition. One of the first things he brings against you is the, is the temptation to compromise. He's already tried to discourage them by their remembering how it used to be. But now he's trying to, he's got another tactic. If I can just get them to mix a little bit of this and mix a little bit of that, hey, it's worth it. I mean, in the end, justify the means, right? As long as the house of the Lord is built, who, who cares how it gets done? God cares. So he says, don't compromise. You guys are going to do it. You'll do it by yourselves. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. So when they couldn't get them to compromise, what do they do? They actively oppose them. They try to intimidate them. They try to frighten them. They try to get them to quit, which we all seen that, right? Yeah, I mean, you get tempted to compromise, but you stand against that. Oh, thank God I didn't fall to that temptation. I'm still working. The devil couldn't get me that way. And then all of a sudden you thought you were liked by everybody because people were coming saying, we want to help you. But now the people that said they want to help you hate you. And you go, but I thought everybody loved Jesus. I thought everybody, if I'm following God, shouldn't everybody like me? And Jesus said, no, if they hated me, they'll probably hate you too. <laughs> we tell you what, I, I know some of you, you don't let your kids play video games, and I'm fine with that. But I played a little Mario growing up. I played little video games growing up, and I, I, sometimes you get lost in a level, and you don't know if you're going the right way. It's a maze. You know how you knew you were going the right way? Suddenly, you run into enemies again. Oh, good, I'm going the right way. <laughs> if I ran into enemies, I know I'm not lost anymore. This is the way I should go. Now, I said this while the kids are downstairs, so whatever your parenting is, you can keep doing that. Don't let them listen to this part of the message. But that's the one thing I learned growing up, playing little video games. There's a lot of video games I wasn't allowed to play. But playing those video games, if there was an enemy there, I knew I was headed in the right direction. When you couldn't find any enemies, you're lost. So they suddenly have enemies. And the people of the land discouraged them, and, and they tried to frighten them. And then they hired counselors, lobbyists. Not counselors like you're thinking, like social workers. No. They, they hired lobbyists to go into the courts of the king to frustrate their counsels all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation, which is another tool of the enemy, right, to accuse you. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of our taxerzes, Bishlam, Mithradeth, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues, make sure you're remembering all these names, there'll be a quiz at the end, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. And Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote, <laughs> this is fun, right? Wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their colleagues. The judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech. This is a history book, so there's a lot of information here. The Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great honorable Osnipur deported and settled in the city of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river. Oh, my goodness. So we got through the intro. <laughs> Let's take a rest. Arise. Yeah, arise. Get up. Okay. 
This is the copy of the letter that they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Is it an interesting that the way the enemy works is he takes an accusation. His accusation is usually the very good things that God is doing through you, he twists them and perverses them. Right? What does the Bible say? Your good will be ill spoken of. Your good will be spoken of as evil. I was trying to do something for the Lord, but they don't get it. And then so many of us have such an obsession with being understood. Oh, I hate to be misunderstood. So what do you do? You sit at home and you worry. Oh, no, they, I was trying to do the right thing. They misunderstood me. What do you do? You text them late at night. You send them an email. You try to fix it. Listen, stop trying to mess with someone's head who's, who's listening to the wrong voices. Stop trying to change their mind. You sit back and you say, oh, if, I, if they could just understand me. And then, you know, if that doesn't work, you take out an ad in the paper. If that doesn't work, you get a, you know, you try all these things to change people's opinion of you. When people's opinion of you is not the most important thing. The very good thing that they're doing has been twisted to be a bad thing. It says they're rebuilding this rebellious city. You remember it. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toil, or toll, sorry. It will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we're in the service of the palace, see, we're doing this for you. It is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Do you love how the flattery here? Like, we're not worried about us. We're worried about you. We don't, we can't bear to see you dishonored like this. It's hard for, it hurts our heart. I don't care about me. God knows I stopped caring about me a long time ago. But you, I care about you. You're being dishonored and, oh, I think that's what really hurts the most. We can't bear it. Therefore, we've sent and informed the king. This is the way snitches sound. They always sound like this. These rats so that a search may be made in the record book of your fathers, and you will discover, go search the records, you will discover that the city is a rebellious city and damaging the kings and provinces, and they've incited result within, revolt within it in the past days. Therefore, the city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. What does the enemy always try to do? Search their past and you'll find out they've got issues. Search their past and you'll find out they're not perfect. Search their past and you'll find out their flaws. Go and look in their history book. That's what the enemies always try to do. When nothing else works, he'll dig up your past. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai the scribe. I love Shimshai. Shimshai the scribe is my superhero. And to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria... Just for the sake of time, <laughs> I'll cut in and just tell you what he said. He said, stop working. I command you to stop. And when this letter came, these guys received it. They ran to Jerusalem, and they used force. They got their weapons out, and they stopped the people from building. It says in verse 24, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. When the prophets, now this kind of gives you a timeline. The work has stopped. This is why the prophets had to keep saying, take courage and work. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them? You need to be reminded when this comes, it's not those kings that are over you. It's God who's over you. So many times we're discouraged when the government or, or when or our bosses or whatever, someone puts us down and says, you can't do what, you, what God calls you to do. You can't do that anymore. And, and we make that the voice that's over us. They're reminding them, no, God is over you. In verse 2, he says this. He says, 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose. What happened? The word of God came back to them. And the word of God got them back up again. And that's what's going to happen. That's why you got to be here this morning. That's why you have to immerse yourself in the word of the Lord. That's why you got to encourage each other with the word of God. That's why we need words of encouragement, exhortation. That's why we need prophecy. That's why we need God speaking today. Because the word of God will stand you back up on your feet. When you are down and you can't get up, the word of God will lift you up and cause you to go back again. And the word of the Lord. So what, how does God stir up the people? He stirs up these men and women, these leaders, by bringing the prophets back to their heads and saying, this is what God says. Verse 3. And at that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani, and the colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? I mean... You know, you know which kid this is in school, right? You already know. Teacher didn't say to do that. Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men who were reconstructing the building. Listen to this. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. Now here's what they're going to do. They're going to write the same letter. And they're going to say, go ahead, dig up the history. But watch what happens. They write this, and I'm going to skip down. They write the same sort of letter. They say, here's what these people say. They say they got permission to do this a long time ago. They say Cyrus gave them permission to do this. Then this is what happens. In verse, mm, let's go to chapter 6. Then King Darius issued a decree and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbatana the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where the sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained, its heights being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stone and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, you snitch, you tattletale, you rat, <laughs> Shethar Boznai and your colleagues, the officials of the province beyond the river, keep away from there. Hang on, do you see what happened? The, same, the tactic that the enemy used was to dig in your history. Stop you from building. Look at you. You're, you're a problem. You've always been a problem. Look at the last time you tried to do this. Look, what you've, look at the stuff I got against you. I got a whole book of stuff you did. But here's the beautiful thing that God does. God took what the enemy meant for evil, and he turns it for good. And now because God has written, rewritten your story, he didn't just rewrite your future. He put yourself in your history. He's in your history. Now when they say, look at their past, what you can say is, look at what God did. And so now the enemy says, look back. It worked before. It worked, it worked years before. Look back in the history. You'll find their problem. Now when they look back in the history, they find a decree from the king that says, not only do you let them do it, but we need to pay for it. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also, well, we read that part. He says, stay away from their work. <laughs> stay away from the river. Leave this work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of the house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury, which one? Out of the taxes of, guess where? The provinces beyond the river. <laughs> 
the, the, the guys that hate these people, the guys that have been snitching on them and causing all this trouble and fighting them every step of the way, all of a sudden their taxes are paying for the temple to be built. And that without delay. Verse 9, whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil. Like he's naming stuff that wasn't in the decree. He's just heaping it on. As the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given them to them daily without fail. Oh, man, these snitches are sad they snitched, right? These guys are sad they wrote that letter. That they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. Now, listen, sometimes kings are still kings. I mean, the guy went overboard, but there he is. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. I love it. The very same history book that the accuser has used against you is now a testimony of what God's done. It carries the decree of the king to bless you and not curse you. The very tactic of the enemy to stop you is now the very thing God uses for your provision. The whole work God paid for. You see, before the enemies bothered them, they were, figure, they were just trying to figure out how they were going to pay for it. They didn't ask the king for money. They didn't ask anybody for any help. But once the enemy attacked them, God used that attack against the enemy. And the very thing that was meant to stop them paid for the whole work. I want to encourage you today to take courage in the work. Take courage in the build. I want to encourage you today that if you've stopped because you've been discouraged, and sometimes discouragement comes from compromise, sometimes discouragement comes from attack, sometimes discouragement comes from accusation, sometimes discouragement comes from slander, sometimes discouragement just comes from being depressed about how it used to be and that it doesn't look the same. Don't be discouraged. Take courage and work, for I am with you, says the Lord. I want to close with what God said through Zechariah to Zerubbabel. Ze Zechariah had a vision, and he saw these two guys that we keep reading about, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. He saw them there. He saw Joshua dirty and clothed in filthy garments, Joshua was representing the people of Israel. Joshua's name is Yeshua. He's also representing the one who's to come. And Yeshua, Joshua, the high priest, stood there filthy. And what the Bible tells us is that Satan was there immediately and stood beside Joshua and started telling everything that Joshua had done. See, he's not worthy, he said, to stand. Look how filthy he is. He can't stand in your presence. That's the accuser that was accusing Israel, accusing the Jews. And the Bible says that the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. Isn't this a brand I plucked from the fire? Isn't this a brand I plucked from the fire? Didn't I pluck this stick from the fire? It's not in the fire anymore. It belongs to me. And he said, put all clean clothes on him. Put a clean turban on his head. Put a ring on his finger. And tell him as long as he walks in my ways, he can stand here. And he can tell these angels what to do. Then in Zechariah 4, he turns his attention. He turns his attention to the other guy that's still standing there, which is Zerubbabel. He returned to me and he roused me as a man who's awakened from sleep. He said, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl in the top of it. And the seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the side of the bowl and the other on its left side. One on the right side, one on the left. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, don't you know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might 
nor by power, but by my spirit. Not by working hard or having more money. Not by trying harder or using one more scheme. By my power, by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone. That's the last stone you put up. The final stone, the finishing stone. He'll put up, he'll finish that. He'll put the last stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know what the Lord of the hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and, for, to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are these two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me and said, don't you know what these are? And, and guys, if we were there, we'd be like, no, why would I, how would I know that? Angels are constantly amazed at how dumb we are. <laughs> I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. He goes on and he explains, and, and we're not going to get to it now, that there's the two anointed ones that are standing, which are these golden pipes, but he sees these channels. He sees a lampstand, and it's drawing olive oil. And if you've read the Bible through, you know that the oil represents the anointing, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It represents the Spirit of God. And there's, when he goes out of his way in these prophecies to use the words to number seven, seven means perfection. It's complete. It's all you need. Right? So not only are there seven eyes where God sees everything, but there's this oil and there's seven channels to the lampstand. Which means all the anointing, all the power of the Spirit that you need, nothing will be lacking. Yep. All that you need for the work, I've completed. It is perfect. It's complete. You'll not just get a little bit of the Spirit here and a little bit of there, a little bit of help here and a little bit of power there. All that you need, I've provided. Remember, it's not by might nor by power. It's by my spirit. And then he says, Zerubbabel, you have all the access to my spirit. You have all the anointing you need to get it done. And I want you to know today that the work of God in your life is not a work for you to just try a little harder, you to try 10 more keys and five more steps to doing it. What you need to do is trust that it is God who is at work within me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is the Spirit of God that has anointed me for this task. So what do I need to do? I need to take courage and work, for God is with me. Start building. Let God lay a foundation. Then build on that foundation. Quit rebuilding every time you get a new idea. Build what God told you to build. Start where you are. Don't start with the capstone. Start with the bottom and move to the top. Right? When, you're plant, when God's planting something, I, I've said this to many of you, when God's planting something, quit digging it up and checking it. <laughs> Let it grow. Oh, I'm frustrated though. It should be out of the ground by now. The best stuff is happening underground. The best stuff is happening where you can't see it. You can't have fruit till you have roots. And if you want a big tree, it needs bigger roots. So rejoice that he can't see it yet, because that means God's at work doing it right now. I want to tell you something that he said to, to the folks at Haggai. After three months of them working, they got frustrated again. And he said, oh, you guys like have seed in the ground and you haven't seen a harvest yet? He says, oh, like you guys seem to be working and nothing's done. He goes, it's only been three months. Trust that I'm doing it. You sowed the seed, the roots are working. He says, you've done the work. The work is beginning. Don't be frustrated that you can't see it yet. I would urge you to go back and read Haggai chapter 2 and see what God says. But I want you to see this story as we see it through Zerubbabel. See it for your own life. That God has begun a work in you. And he's building and he wants you to build with him. He wants you to work with him. Come back, take courage and start working again. 
Get back to what God's doing. Listen, if you're noticing, if you're frustrated with how your job's going, if you're frustrated with your relationships, if you're frustrated with those things, maybe take a minute and stop focusing so much on your stuff. Begin to look to the work of the kingdom. What's God doing in my life? What's God called me to do? Let that be your priority. I'm not saying neglect your family. I'm not saying don't show up to work. No, 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 I'm not saying any of that. But put the priority on the things of God. And God will take care of everything else. And thank God, when the word of the Lord comes, it stirs our hearts. It causes us to get up and rise up. It causes us up to stop being afraid. Because the enemy will send many things. But you notice something? No matter what the enemy tried, he couldn't stop the work of God. As long as the people worked, nobody could stop them. When they got scared, they quit. When they got discouraged, they quit. When they got intimidated, they quit. God didn't make them do that. They did that. But when the word of the Lord came back, they got up again. And the last thing I want to say to you before we stand up is I know whenever we talk about this, there's some of us who are on phase five of quitting and starting again. And there's the condemnation that comes on you that you never finish. But you know what? These guys, did you see how many times they quit? Do you see how many times they they? let things go and didn't, they had to be reminded again. Your only priority is not to go back and change the past. You can't do that. Your only priority is now that the word of the Lord comes to you, be stirred and get up again. Because as long as God's still speaking to you, it means he's not done with you. Right? As long as you can still hear the voice of God, you can still do the work of God. So don't be, don't beat yourself up. Don't be condemned over what you haven't done or what you could have done. It's today. Today is the day of salvation. Start now. Get up now. Arise now. Let God stir you up. Let God stand you up. And let God return you the courage that says, take courage and work for I'm with you. Stand up with me today.